Let me pray for us here. Father, I thank you so much for this time you've given to us. God, I pray that our hearts and minds and souls would be open this morning to hear your word. That, Father, we would recognize whose words they are, who it is that is speaking to us through this apostle. Father, I pray that you would watch over us, guard us from thinking incorrectly, guard us from doubting, guard us from the evil one, guard us from ourselves. Help us, Father, to listen. Please help me to speak. Father, help me to speak in a way that everyone here can understand. And Father, I pray that you would move us towards your Son more and more all the time. This I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Peter chapter 4. Just give you kind of an outline of where we're headed next week. We'll take a break, uh, break from going through 1 Peter. We'll focus on giving thanks. I'm not sure where we're going to go with that yet, but we'll do that. And then the following Sunday, the last Sunday in November, will be our last message in First Peter, December will be a series through Advent, and then we'll pick back up in Second Peter in January, in case you were wondering. Now you can write all that out and stick it on your refrigerator with a magnet so that you are able to sleep. I don't know why I went through all that just then, but... <laughs> our Lord Jesus connected suffering to glory more clearly than anybody in history. The night before He died... In John 17, he prayed these words, Father, the hour has come, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour that Jesus was speaking of was the hour of his death, the time appointed for him to die, the time for the suffering that would bring us to God to reach its climax at the cross. And so in the darkest moment of human history, the Son of God would be the most glorified in order that ultimately the Father would be glorified. And I wish this morning, I wish I had the words to describe Jesus well enough to you. Who He is. Who He was. Who He will be. I, I, it, it isn't ultimately, to be honest, it isn't ultimately dogma or theology that pulls me to Jesus. It's, it's the who of Jesus much more than it is the what that draws me to Him. It's one thing, and it's not a small thing at all, for another human being to suffer on behalf of his or her friends or family or people they don't know. It's another thing entirely for God the Son to take on human flesh, to die and suffer on behalf of His enemies in order that He might provide everything they need to come back into fellowship with the One who made them. It's, it's there. It's in our ever-tightening grasp of who Jesus is that we find life in these lives that God has called us to while we're on earth. And so as we near the last chapter now, every paragraph of this letter has been pushing us, if we're really reading it, to just look at Jesus, to realize what He's done for us, how He lived, who He is for us still. At some point as believers, we need to realize that we've been called to focus on our souls to be willing at some point to let these bodies go. Peter writes to us as eternal beings, not people that just occupy a space for 70 or 80 or 90 years or whatever it is. That's the only way the Bible makes sense, really, is if we read it and understand it's been written to people who have eternity written on their hearts, people who will 
go beyond death. And the only way to see things like that is to see Jesus, to know Jesus. Peter called the elect exiles in Asia Minor to entrust their souls to God in the midst of suffering while submitting their lives to Him. Our souls are only ever going to be safe in the arms of our faithful God. So now may we hear and believe God's Word together. I'll read verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, therefore, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter told the elect exiles here in Asia Minor that he's aware they've been grieved by various trials, but that going through them was necessary, that the genuineness of their faith would be tested in the crucible, just like gold is tested by fire. Everything he's written to them has been written with the understanding that Christians, what he calls sojourners and exiles in this world, will be a suffering people. We will suffer because we no longer hope in anything our flesh desires to give us life or meaning. We'll suffer because people will not understand why we don't hope in the same things they do. And they'll malign us for it. We'll suffer because... We're called to willingly subject ourselves in all the different walks of life to people and powers and authorities and structures that are not really worth being subjected to necessarily, that can't be trusted to have our best interests at heart as the motivating force behind their authority over us. When Peter wrote these things, the immediate context was citizens of the Roman Empire who were under the thumb not just of a government with which they disagreed, but an emperor who had complete and ultimate control over their lives and would soon begin to take their lives for their faith. So the weight of his commands are a little hard for us to take this morning to understand fully because we enjoy things like individual rights and a constitution and checks and balances and a free market and things like that. But for some reason, even in the midst of of not being under the thumb as much as they were, We find these commands just as hard, if not harder, to follow than people living under an emperor who would eventually want to snuff them out. So perhaps Peter's words are even more relevant for us this morning here in America. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's amazing how that sentence is structured, what it says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We need to hear the Word of God this morning because we tend to act shocked 
to learn that suffering and trial are the appointed way of life for God's beloved children in this world. That that is precisely what is in the cards. Almost everything that is written and so much of what is said is, is somehow to reach this point in life where we won't have trials and struggles as much anymore. We're just setting ourselves up to do exactly what the text says not to do and be surprised when they come. For some reason, we're conditioned to think that Christianity is the path to an easy life. What do people normally say if they're in certain parts of our culture where church is more acceptable? If things are going wrong, what do they think? You know what? I need to get back into church. I need to get closer to the Lord again, and then everything will improve. It may. And there are things that certainly could get better if we prioritize our lives well. There's no question. But this idea that like suffering and trial can just be a, a, a nice, you know, a thought about what, how it used to be, we're setting ourselves up to not be able to submit ourselves to the text. The more faithful you are, the easier everything will go. When God's Word says, expect to be tested. Expect it. Expect to endure trials and suffering. Not only are you sojourners and exiles, aliens who don't belong in this world, but the passions of your own flesh are still at war with your soul. If everybody was leaving you alone and everything was fine, you'd still have the person you see in the mirror every morning who's dead set against your soul. You're going to want this world. We're going to want this world to be our home. That's going to tempt us all the time. We're going to try to squeeze it into something that will be life for us. If we do that, we're setting ourselves up to be constantly shocked when suffering and trials come. If we don't want to be surprised by trials, if we don't want to be cut off by the knees of suffering or by the knees, at the knees of our suffering and adversity, our minds need to be armed with the same way of thinking that our Lord Jesus had. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, what is it that would cause us to be surprised by fiery trials when we've been told they're coming not only because we live as strangers in this world, but in order to test the genuineness of our faith? How could they still be so unnerving for us if we don't expect them? That's how. If we don't expect that they're coming, not as a pessimist, as a realist. But why would we ever expect something different if we haven't armed our minds with the whole truth about Jesus? If we continue to shut out the truth and shut out the example of Jesus, the clear words of Scripture, if we continue to believe that no, we can make this world into a nice home for us, we just have to get the right people in power or have the right spouse or look a certain way or earn enough money or get popular enough or have the right job. If those things fall into place, beloved, if that's where our hope is fixed, if that's what our mindset is, we will increasingly be blown over, knocked over by the wind and the waves of this world. God has never hidden it from us that we are meant to go through trials. Why do they continue to so devastate us as some kind of sign that we're doing something wrong? I, I, I do hear that. I do hear that. When things begin to go wrong in people's lives, I'll hear them say things like, I had been trying so hard. I had been doing so well. I don't understand. It's, it's not, I'm not knocking that. That's a tragedy. I hate to hear that. It, it, 
Trials do not, almost never are there as Christians because we've messed up. Like God is not a sheriff. Jesus took care of it. Right? It, it's, can we make decisions that, that cause consequences? Absolutely. But like sometimes that's just because we live here. You know, it, it doesn't mean God is after you and against you because you haven't been perfect. We need that kind of, that's how you, that's how you set yourself up to be surprised. And we don't want to be surprised. If we continue to shut out Jesus, we won't be ready. You know, we'll, we'll just be devastated. We, we, if, if you took a fish and threw a fish up on land, the fish isn't thinking, um, you know what, I should make this home. I like this. No, he, he's thinking, I can't breathe. Get me back in the water. You and I were never meant to adjust here. You and I, as we, if we've been sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves, we were never meant to say, you know what? Wolves are pretty cool. No, wolves are not cool to sheep. Not even a little bit. It's not safe for sheep in the midst of wolves. It never will be. We're not meant to adjust here. Child of God, the person that was born when you came into the world the first time is dead. You've been born again. And the new creation is not meant for this one. Trials, therefore, are not out of the ordinary for the believer. They're not strange. We should never say, and we should never read or listen to anyone that does say, when you walk through trials, what you should be saying is, now wait a minute, I'm an overcoming child of God. This isn't right. Where did I slip up? Why are things going wrong? I have the Lord's favor. Nothing bad can happen to me. Like, do preachers that preach that have a Bible? I mean, how can we read this book and come away thinking there's this victorious Christian life that if we just live well enough and give the right amount of money to said preacher or author... Everything will be fine. It's anti-Christ. Jesus didn't set you and I up to not understand the difficulty of living in this world. He's the prototype of what life in this world, when your eyes are fixed on heaven, is going to look like, beloved. They're not strange. Trials are not strange. You know what ought to be strange, if we're being honest? And shocking to us, if we're a child of God, prolonged ease and comfort. Now, it's not, I want to be careful here, it's not that if you aren't going through trials, it means you're sinning or something. No, no, no. I don't mean that at all. But neither is it true that if you are in trials, it automatically means you've fallen out of God's favor. No, no, no. Your trials may be the very evidence that you belong to God. It did for His Son. His suffering was the evidence of God's hand on His life. To walk through trials, to suffer, is not out of the ordinary for God's children in this world. It is the ordinary. It's necessary, as a matter of fact. And again, it, it doesn't... Paul, Peter's statement, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you, as though some, means that it won't always be fiery trials. It simply means they are going to keep coming. 
They're going to keep coming. And if you don't want to be surprised, we need to get ready. And readiness is not about buckling down and willpower and ability and skill. It's about training our hearts to be dependent on Christ alone in everything for everything. Everything. We have to be weaned off the world. But rejoice in this, Peter says. Rejoice in this, beloved, in verse 13. Don't rejoice that you're suffering. Right? It's not masochistic. Don't rejoice in the pain or the hurt. Rejoice to the degree that you are united to Christ when you suffer for the same reasons He did. It's not necessarily Christian or divine to smile and act like you're not suffering when you're suffering. And it isn't that knowing suffering is coming will always make it harder or easier to deal with, per se. It's that suffering because you know this is not your home. And suffering because you long to be with Christ and be free of this world. And suffering because you've put your hope in Him, which can get you maligned and mistreated here. Rejoice because that is actually preparing you for glory, just like it did for Jesus. To endure sorrow and faith while suffering unjustly now, even if all your faith is, is just this belief that won't die deep down inside as you are being crushed, that one day Jesus will make it right. It's to prepare your soul for the revealing of Jesus, our King, as the King. To refuse to believe that, or to refuse in your heart the fact that glory for the believer comes later. To believe that this world can be your home and to reject the suffering that comes from not being made for it. To continue to live for the passions of the flesh means we're unprepared for the final day. Preparation for the final day is not primarily about the knowledge you and I have about the final day. Preparation for the final day is a heart that longs for it, for the rescue of Jesus. Peter continues to argue for the necessity of a heavenly mindset. If you pull away, I mean just to get an, an overview of what these men generally are pushing us towards, it's to think the right way. And it's to have our minds fixed on heaven and on Christ. In verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Do you understand how everything he's saying here, this is all perspective stuff. This is all mindset stuff. Remember, Peter is handing out ammo for our minds here. He's fortifying our spiritual defenses. If you are insulted, he said back in chapter 4, if you're maligned for hoping in Christ, if you're insulted for hoping in Christ, not just if you're insulted, you might deserve that. Right? We can all do things that, you know what, you need to be insulted right now because you acted like an idiot. You know, there are moments like that in life. This is something different. This is being insulted for the name of Christ. If that has happened to you, for believing that Jesus is precisely who He claimed to be, and because you stake your whole claim on Him and nothing else, that insulting, that maligning, and the suffering you endure because of it is not evidence of God's absence or disapproval of you. It is the evidence of His presence with and approval of you. That's what it is. 
The Spirit of glory and of God hasn't departed from you when you suffer. He is resting on you when you suffer. Blessing in the Christian life has little to do with circumstances. Little to do with material, tangible things and much more to do. Blessing has much more to do for the believer with God's position towards or declaration about you and I, regardless of what our circumstances might be. We're shaped by the spiritual realities that God has made true for us in His Son. Listen now again to verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So, if we're insulted because we're a self-righteous, belligerent, nagging, insulting, complaining, grumpy jerk, or we're insulted because we've disobeyed God's clear word and made ourselves into a thief or a murderer or a meddler, don't rejoice. Don't try to use that as this evidence that you're righteous. God does not defend our earthbound fights. We have to understand this or we'll be surprised when they come. God is not supporting our obsession with meddling in the affairs of the world. It's right here in God's Word. He is not on our side when we try to make this world our home and fight because it just won't yield. In other words, we don't kill abortion doctors. We don't kill our political, we don't call our political enemies things like useful idiots. I see, I see this. Who are we going to win to Christ with that kind of worldly rhetoric? We don't steal from the government because taxes aren't fair. If we get caught for those things, we can't claim we're doing it in the name of Jesus. Would we unite Christ to Baal? No, beloved. Hear the Word of God in First Peter. This is not a letter for political dissidents who are trying to hijack Jesus to build an earthly kingdom. This is a letter to people who will suffer precisely because they follow Jesus. A king who had no place to lay his head here, didn't plan to stay here, subjected himself willingly to his enemies here, died for his enemies here, and whose kingdom is not and never will be of this world. That's why, that's the reason why we don't fight to set up the kingdom of Jesus over against the kingdom of men. It's a different kind of kingdom. It will be achieved in a different way. If, if, if we can't grasp that, we're, we're going to have the wrong approach all the time. Therefore, our thought is, if, if we shape this into what we think it should be, we won't suffer anymore. Do you understand we're trying to talk ourselves out of having to obey the Word of God? It won't work, beloved. It won't work. We can only claim the name of Jesus when we have embraced the way of Jesus. And when we suffer because we have embraced that name, when that's the case, Peter says, look to the Savior whose spirit of glory and of God rests upon you and have peace. He sees, He knows, and He will come for you. He will never forget you. Beloved, don't set yourself up to let the world tell you who you are. If we fight for a home in this world, the world will always be able to take it from us. 
But if instead we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust corrupt, where thieves cannot break in and steal, then we will have life in Christ forever. We will never lose ever again anything. What Peter calls in 1, 4 through 5, if you remember, an inheritance. You don't get inheritances while some, they don't come now. They come later. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In the last time, beloved. It's out there. It's out there. It's in front of us. That's why in verse 16, we don't need to be ashamed when we suffer for Christ. When we suffer in that name. When we suffer as Christian. For being Christian. See what Peter is pushing us to hear, to listen to. Jesus has won. It's finished. He's overcome the world. He just hasn't consummated His reign yet. So we suffer here in the tension between two worlds. This one and heaven. But he tells us three things here. Don't be surprised by the suffering. Don't think it's strange. And don't be ashamed of it. The glory of God is revealed through it. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? These verses are written this way. Remember... Because the end of all things is at hand now that Jesus has been glorified. God's judgment on this world is coming out everywhere, little by little, until it comes in fullness finally at the end. It's even present in a visible way in the church. At least it's starting there, he's saying. Because that's the place, if you think about it, where the presence of Jesus, the King, is most present on the earth. The refining fire of judgment for us, these fiery trials, leave no one untouched. But God's children aren't being destroyed by them. They're being purified and strengthened to endure through these trials. Sometimes we suffer because of our own behavior, right? And that comes out when we refuse to fully embrace the gospel. Right? We continue to believe our flesh that other things can satisfy. That causes us to sin. Sometimes we suffer because of our own sin, because of the things that we do here on earth. Sometimes we aren't suffering because the world is maligning or persecuting us. Sometimes we're going to be suffering because we drank from stale fountains again that don't have living water. And so for us, rather than as a judge who will bring condemnation down on us, God now, like a loving father, corrects us and brings us back. We, as parents, we understand this. When our children sin or when they misbehave, if we're thinking clearly we aren't punishing them like it's about us, we're punishing them because we love them and don't want them to get hurt or to get killed or to get ta- or whatever it is, right? It, it, my children look at me like I'm a tyrant if I won't let them just run loose around the mall. Like who? I'm letting you run around the mall. Like I love you. It's, we're not, you I don't know. It's the example's not working, is it? You know what I mean, right? You, you, 
children don't understand sometimes what loving correction or loving guidelines are for. We don't ever really lose that. You know, we, we grow up, we like to think we're beyond that. We do this with God's Word all the time. Right? God corrects. He brings us back. And remember when that happens, when we're being pruned, that the hand of the gardener is closest to the branches when he's pruning them. In this way, judgment has begun at the church where the reign of Jesus is most visible and is meant to be most clear, but it also has moved outward over the world. It is here, right? This is Romans 1. The wrath of God is currently being poured out, is currently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness in the world. Through God giving people up to their passions, right? Through God just saying, all right, go ahead, find hope in that empty bucket. Find it. That, that's, that's judgment being poured out right now in the world we live in. Man, mankind's sinful pursuits are the wrath of God being poured out. Because when you pursue empty buckets, you won't find water. That's judgment. Go, do it. Pursue the nothingness and forsake the fountain of living water. God is giving people over to drinking from fountains that will never satisfy. And that's just a foretaste of what is coming. My goodness, what is coming. Peter says, if there's a kind of judgment present then among those who have believed the gospel... What will the judgment be like for people who don't? That's what it means to obey the gospel of God. It means to believe it. What about the ones that don't? He says, the righteous are scarcely saved. So much for thinking that we're great. Like we're, we're going to get in by the skin of our teeth. If that's true for them, what will become of the one who rejects Jesus altogether? So Peter brings in Proverbs here. Wisdom, 11... 31, in verse 18, to make his point, reminding his readers that the only way for anybody to live that makes sense is to live in the fear of the Lord, with reverence to and recognition of the God who is over all. So Peter couldn't be more clear about how dependent we must remain on Jesus for everything about our faith. Everything. From our profession of belief and the faith that carries us through to finally taking hold one day of eternal life after suffering and trials. In the midst of all that, the righteous are scarcely saved. Do we really think, as we read these things, that some of us would be able to hold out if any of it is on us? Beloved, this is not a call to a stiff upper lip. This is a call to collapse into the arms of Jesus. Because that's the only place we're safe. When we read the Bible like an instruction manual and not as a love story about this Savior who saves sinners, all we're doing is distancing ourselves from grace and continuing to convince ourselves that we can do it right, we can work it out, we can get strong enough, we can get good enough, mainly to avoid trouble, when all the while avoiding trouble is not in the cards. It's just not in the cards. Therefore, in verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So all the threads of 2.11 from 2.11 to 4.18 come together in this one sentence. Right here. This is the climax of the letter. It's very strange that anything follows verse 19. We'll get into that in two weeks, but it's very strange because that's it. That's what he wanted to say. 
Verse 19 is the statement that summarizes the theme of Peter's whole letter. I think he wrote the letter because he wanted to say verse 19. Whether we're suffering for doing good or suffering because we've gotten off the path, we are called, we have been invited to entrust our souls to God as we live as His children in this world. As we live holy lives, that is, set apart from the world because our hope is outside of it. Believing, submitting, subjecting ourselves, defending our hope. All right, this final section in chapter 4 started out with that most beautiful of words from First Peter, didn't it? Beloved. Beloved, that's who God is talking to here. His beloved. His church. These are His words to you, His special people. God is holding you and I as we're letting go. Did you know that? Did you know that? As He calls us to embrace the suffering that we'll display, that our hope is in Christ, He invites us then to entrust our souls to Him. Beloved, the Lord will give and the Lord will take away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. There is a connection, isn't there, between suffering and glory. Most of us have probably learned this in one way or another. I mean, you get to know people, you get to talk to people, you, you begin to find that it's through our suffering, it's through these trials that we tend to truly discover who God is for us. doesn't always come as easily in ease or comfort when we truly come to know how precious our God is, it's, it's normally in the breaking. It's in the difficulty and the pain that our spiritual senses are actually sharpened. It's the things that lay us low that tend to be our greatest glory when glory there means a sense of the presence and power of God in our hearts. Peter says that as we suffer, we entrust our souls to a faithful Creator. A faithful God. So as we close here, consider the words the Spirit has inspired here. How will we ever know God as faithful if we don't ever need Him to show Himself faithful on our behalf? Can we grasp that this morning? I'm asking myself, what do we really want from Him? You ever heard people say, kind of tongue-in-cheek, don't pray for patience. Right? Don't pray for patience. Why? What, why not? Well, because if you pray for patience, God will have to refine you and, and mold it in you through suffering and struggling and adversity. So don't pray for patience. Which reveals something about what we prioritize. Do we want to be patient? Do we want to be holy? Or do we want to be comfortable and at home in this world? Faithful God is not for this world. It's not what He's doing. That's not what He's doing. He's not working here to turn this world into our home. You know what patience is? If we're thinking about that example, don't pray for patience. You know what patience is? Peace. 
I think I would kill to be patient. Right? To just not lose my mind. Like I, I have a catalog of pictures. I was sharing this on Wednesday night, and I'm not joking. All right, I don't know if I should reveal this about myself or not because we're still in that nice honeymoon time. <laughs> I take pictures. It's too late now. I take pictures and send them to my wife from a fast food drive-thru of the cars in front of me that won't pull all the way up. I lose my mind. You, you, you have broken the chain of efficiency here, sir, ma'am, because you won't pull up I can't pull up. I can't place my order. It's killing everybody behind us. Right? Just scoot up. I just, I just, and I take a picture, I send it to my wife, and I say, can you believe this? All the time. I will probably do it tomorrow. I, I would love to, like, just, what if I just sat there like, man, this is the greatest thing. I'm just at peace right now. Look at you. You won't pull up because you're inconsiderate. It's awesome. I, that would be wonderful, but I, I, Patience would be wonderful if, if we. That, that's I know I'm, I'm being dumb, but patience is peace. What, what if what if we had that? What if we had that? Our God is faithful. He never leaves. He never forsakes. Do you believe this ever? He never changes his mind about us. He never will walk out on us. Ever. Do you know how we'll come to know Him as what He has set Himself up to be for us? We're going to have to learn through the trials. You, you won't ever know that He never forsakes until you give Him every reason to and He still doesn't. You won't know that He won't leave you until you give Him a reason to and He still doesn't. And I'm not saying, are you saying we should go out and sin? No, you're going to. You don't need my help to do that. You're going to struggle. I'm telling you who God is. We won't ever know that God never changes His mind about us until we give Him every reason to, and He still won't do it. You won't know that God will never walk out on you until you're in the midst of incomprehensible, immeasurable pain. And when you come groping in the darkness back to Him again and again, you feel Him every time take your hand and lead you back. That's how I've come to know that He loves me. To be perfectly honest with you. I keep giving Him reasons not to. And He just won't stop pursuing me. He is relentlessly faithful. I tried with all of my might to never go to church or be a preacher ever again several years ago. And he wouldn't have it. Obviously. <laughs> right? I mean, he, he, just, he just pursues. He just pursues. That's how big what Jesus has accomplished for us is. Right? It, it doesn't run out. It doesn't run out. That's your faithful God, beloved. That's who He is. Faithfulness is pointless when there's no desperation. God has set up our lives so that we live through the refining trials and suffering of this world. We will learn that when all is said and done, there is one Father who actually keeps His promises. One Savior who never lets go. One God who really knows our name quoted it, I don't remember from whom, in Joe, but God's address is at the end of your rope. 
Find him faithful. Taste and see, beloved. Let go this morning. Fall into the arms of Jesus. Our souls are only safe in the arms of our faithful God. We need him this morning. If you don't know this God of whom we speak, you just have to. Come to him. Bring all your baggage. Jesus will bring the bread and the wine. And as you repent, you will be forgiven and accepted, and he will never renege on his promise, no matter how much you and I may. Come to him and be saved. And if you know him and you struggle through these trials, fall into the embrace of your Savior. He loves you. He is for you. He cannot go against himself. I'm going to pray. We'll sing a song of invitation together. I'll be here for anyone that wants to come and pray for any reason. Others can come and help as well. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the time that you've given us this morning. I thank you, Lord, for the promise that is ours and secured forever because of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for him, Father. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the peace that you give. I thank you for your relentless faithfulness to us. Watch over this flock, oh God. Watch over every person in this room. We all need you. Father, I pray that we would all realize it. This morning, this I ask in his name. Amen.